from the White Letter Production Studios in Los Angeles, California. I'm Ellie Unger-Sargon, and this is The Cut Podcast. Huomenta. Minä olen Eli. Ja olen jutalainen. Minä luulen, että umperilaikkaus on väärin. Okay, I hope that came across. Could you translate, please? My name, good morning, my name is Ellie. Yes. I'm Jewish, and I think that circumcision is wrong. Excellent. Okay, before I start, I just want to give a shout out of thanks to the people who made it possible for Penny and I to be here today. Dan Strangerd, um, without whom we literally couldn't be here, and Penny's uh, family, Eno, Ya Irma Pennanen, who have been hosting us graciously. Uh, Penny has cousins here, and they've been taking care of all of our needs while we've been here. So I just wanted to thank uh, them for for helping us. Um, So just a moment about the title, which is a little abstract. Um, The cut tour between art and activism. I've made a point in the past of making a distinction between uh, being an artist and being an activist, and this presentation will proceed on the basis of two conceits. The first conceit is that indeed, I am an artist and not an activist, although you may disagree with me by the end of the uh, presentation. And the second conceit is that I actually have something uh, in the way of uh, constructive criticism for the intactivist movement that I would like to share from my experiences over the last year. So those are the two conceits. Just bear with me. I I hope it'll uh, become clear. So my uh, 2011 was very, very busy. In the beginning of the year, Penny and I were in uh, Israel and the West Bank um, on a third production trip for the film that we're working on now, A People Without a Land. Uh, And we were uh, in the middle of an intense production schedule. We were getting 500 street interviews, 250 from Israelis and 250 from Palestinians in 10 major population centers, working 16-hour days to get these. And uh, as I was there, Uh, I got a strange Facebook message from a Facebook friend that I have never met named Abe Haim in Portland. And he said, "Um, we'd like to take your film cut uh, to 30 cities. I sort of, it was late and we'd done a ton of interviews that day and I was like, okay. I mean, (laughs) I didn't think it was going to happen and I said, but you know, it's a crazy idea and I like crazy ideas. So uh, I said, sure, if you can uh, raise the money for the expenses for the tour, I'm game. Okay, so we finished our production uh, trip and uh, we came back to Chicago where we were living at the time. Uh, And uh, so I was in corporate America.
Um, what was I doing in corporate America? Well, you know, this may come as a surprise to some of you, but actually uh, being a documentary filmmaker isn't exactly a lucrative line of work. So I was doing translation for a law firm, uh, from uh, technical translation from Hebrew to English to, to make some money. And as I was uh, working some crazy 100-hour weeks, I got an email from the newly minted op-ed editor of the Jewish Daily Forward. Now, for those of you who don't know, the Jewish Daily Forward is one of the most venerated um, and uh, old American Jewish publications in the States. Um, they actually have a very high level of journalism, and I, I have great admiration for the work that they do. Um, uh, Gal Beckerman had just become the op-ed editor of the Jewish Daily Forward, and one of the first calls that he made after he became the op-ed edit editor was to call me, or to email me. And he said, um, you know this business that's going on in San Francisco? And I said, yes. And he said, well, I'd like you to write an op-ed for the Jewish Daily Forward about that. And I thought, okay, I'm game. Um, so this was in May, uh, actually a little earlier, and the publication of my op-ed was postponed because of the uh, killing of Osama bin Laden, which took up a number of news cycles. Um, but eventually, uh, I got my op-ed through. Uh, I should note that um, <laughs> I got some notes back on my first, uh, my first draft that I sent in. Um, and the notes were very positive overall, but I noticed that there were a number of changes beyond the sort of normal grammatical <laughs> refinements. Um, and one of those changes was uh, the addition of a sentence that went something like this. I don't remember, I'm going to paraphrase, or I don't remember precisely, but it went something like this. Um, Circumcision has been proven in Africa to reduce the risk of HIV transmission in heterosexual intercourse, something along those lines. And I, I wrote back and I said, you know, I didn't write that. <laughs> um, and um, Mr. Beckerman sort of in a very polite way said, well, I mean, you know, I just thought, you know, the readers would like to see that because your argument is that even if there are medical benefits, there's still an ethical problem. So we should admit that there are medical benefits. And I said, yeah, uh, I don't have room in 1,500 words to address the African RCTs, so please remove that sentence. And to his credit, he did, and my op-ed ran uh, unaltered. Uh, this is in May. A few days later, uh, there was a counter op-ed by a man by the name of Melvin Connor. Melvin Connor is a very well-respected uh, anthropology professor at Emory University, and he'll make an, uh, a cameo a little bit later in the uh, presentation. Uh, and uh, I, I'm not responsible for the atrocious artwork, but um, there you have it. So this was part of the lead up to what would be the tour. And in many ways, this lead up, this sort of uh, uh, prelude, uh, got even more dramatic uh, when a good friend of mine, Mordechai Lavovitz, who um, most of you probably have never heard of, but is actually uh, a leading gay rights activist in the Orthodox Jewish world in New York, uh, and happens to be my oldest friend, uh, said to me, why don't you debate Shmuley Boteach? Now, for those of you who don't know, Shmuley Boteach uh, is the self-styled America's rabbi. He's the rabbi to the stars. 
He had a sort of uh, relationship with Michael Jackson, and he's been on Oprah numerous times, and he, he had a television show. He's a celebrity rabbi. And he likes, for whatever reason, engaging in public debates on controversial subjects. Um, I later learned that he had originally contacted Lloyd Schofield, um, who he wanted to debate. And Lloyd wisely declined. I'll get back to the wisdom of that decision later on in the presentation. Um, so Mordechai said, why don't you step in? And Mordechai actually, you know, really being, coming from the same background that I do, appreciates a good argument and a good debate. And he said, why don't you step in? So I wrote to Botaf's people. And sure enough, I got an email back saying, OK. Now, the reason I put the poster up is because you'll notice something very interesting about it. It's a, it's a poster for a debate uh, between two people. Oh. <laughs> and um, one person's name is mysteriously absent from the graphic design. Okay, okay. What am I going to do? I'm not famous. Uh, he is. Uh, this was on his turf, and I was aware of that. Um, at the Manhattan Jewish Experience, which is sort of an outreach experience, uh, kind of a you know light propaganda to Jews who uh, the religious feel aren't religious enough, so they try to like get them in and be more Jewish or something. Um, so uh, yeah, so I flew to New York, and I'm gonna what I'm gonna show you now is uh, the first uh, let's say 15 or so minutes of this debate. Um, I apologize for the quality of the video. I had to scrape it off of the internet because at the last minute they reneged on one of our initial terms and refused to allow me to shoot it. Um, there were some other shenanigans of that nature that we don't have to get into. But uh, I'll play my opening statement and a little bit of Rabbi Gauter's opening statement uh, for your viewing pleasure. Okay, and on, and on, and on, and on, and on, and on. And if you'd like to see the rest of that gem, you can go to my website, cutthefilm.com, or you could search for it on YouTube. I actually uploaded, this was just the first, they just, for whatever reason, decided to just put the first 43 minutes up on YouTube. Um, it was an hour and 20 minute debate uh, and toward the end the audience kind of turns on the rabbi in the Q&A session. That might have something to do with why they didn't include that part in the video. I'm not sure. Um, Give us that website again. Cutthefilm.com. Um, but... Um, so there's no recording with that? There's a... I... I okay, so what happened was, um, I'll just tell the story very quickly. One of my conditions for doing this was that I would get access to a video or be able to shoot my own video of the event. And a few hours before the event, they called me up and they said, you can't shoot video of it. So I knew that there were shenanigans going on. Uh, and then when I got back to LA and I said, can I have the video as we agreed? You know, fine, I didn't shoot, but can I have the video as we agreed? And they said, no. And so luckily, um, I was not trusting at the event. And you see this recorder right here? <laughs> At the last minute, I turned it on, and I got the whole thing, not video, but audio, and I then uploaded that to YouTube right after they said that they weren't going to give me the video. So it, it exists in its full form. Um, 
But uh, yeah, I, it, it was a supremely uh, unsatisfying experience for me. I'd spent two weeks preparing for the debate. Uh, I think you can see even from this little bit that the rabbi really hadn't spent any time preparing. And if you want to watch or listen to the whole thing, it becomes even more apparent later on. Uh, this is what my brother had to say. <laughs> And, you know, I had spent all that time preparing, and I knew that I was coming up to uh, the tour. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was just a, a month or so away. Um, and so I started thinking seriously about what my brother was saying. Um, because it's true. And, and, and in the best uh, tradition of my people, um, you get the furthest and the deepest understanding of your own position when you have serious opponents. This is a really important uh, point. Uh, and so I started thinking about what are the serious positions about circumcision. And I, very quickly I eliminated the, the sort of health argument. I don't consider any person who makes the health argument to be, that I don't think that's a serious position. I think we all know, I don't have to explain to, to this audience why it's not a serious position, but it, it, it's not, it doesn't meet the basic reason test, if you will. But there are three positions, I believe, general, in, in general terms, that do meet the sniff test in terms of reason. And, and this is them. You have religious fundamentalism. Now, I really don't like religious fundamentalism, but it is consistent. God told me to do this. I'm going to do it. God is much bigger than me. I am much smaller than him. I will obey God. There's nothing inconsistent in that logic. I, I, I'm offended by it in, in a number of ways, but it's consistent. Religious fundamentalism. The next one is cultural relativism. And cultural relativism basically argues consistently that we ought, as a liberal society, to tolerate a variety of cultural practices, and they will consistently argue that that applies to both female genital cutting practices and male, male genital cutting practices. It's a serious position. It needs to be addressed. And of course, I don't have to tell you about the human rights position, because that's what this conference is about. But the human rights position, I believe, is a consistent position as well. I bring this up here also for a very interesting uh, insight that I, that, that I want to share with you. Um, I think it's very interesting. That all three uh, groups, let's say that these are groups of people for the sake of what I'm about to say, all three groups I think make uh, similar mistakes when they think about religion. Um, and the mistake in short is as follows. The mistake is that there is only one way to think about religion. That religion basically, that the religious fundamentalists have it right. It's a monolithic, and you know, there may be a variety of religions, but they each have an absolute system, and that's the end of the story. You either buy it or you don't buy it. There's no wiggle room, there's no, uh, that's what it is. I think the cultural relativists sort of take that as a granted about religion and cultural practices. And I think even some human rights activists um, look at religion that way. And I hope by the end of this presentation that this 
audience will not be a part of that anymore. Okay, so what am I going to do? So these are the serious positions, and I, I realized I was going to be, I had this unique opportunity, I'm going to be traveling around the country, and I have the opportunity to meet with serious people from all of these different positions. So I thought, you know what, I always wanted to, to do a big podcast about circumcision. A podcast, for those of you who don't know, is uh, it's sort of like a, an audio show that you can access through the internet, um, and in particular Apple popularized it when they included it in their iTunes software in 2005. Uh, it's free accessible to everyone, and I thought this would be a great opportunity. I'd record the Q&A sessions from the cut screenings, and I'd do special interviews with people along the way. From the White Letter Production Studios in Los Angeles, California, I'm Eliander Sargon, and this is The Cut Podcast. So after I uh, put the full audio recording of the debate as the first episode of the podcast, I went about looking for my serious opponents, um, taking my brother's advice seriously. And the first person I found was a philosopher uh, by the name of Jeff Helmreich, who uh, is a part of my uh, community in Los Angeles. Uh, and he's a philosopher of mind. And we sat down to discuss the uh, Benatar paper from, I believe it's 2003 in the Bioethics Journal. Uh, this is a famous, there isn't a lot of work in bioethics on circumcision. I always assumed it was because everyone gets that it's wrong, so there's not much to discuss. But uh, I may be wrong about that. Um, but the, the Benatar argument, uh, the, the Benatar brothers are, uh, one of them is a philosopher, one of them is a physician, and they're, uh, this, this essay is actually a very serious essay, uh, in which they basically uh, make a philosophical argument for the 1999-2005 AAP position, which is that this, is a matter, this should be a matter for parental discretion. Circumcision, male infant circumcision, is not necessarily right. It's not necessarily wrong. It should be up to the parents to decide. And they, they make this argument. So I discussed the paper uh, in the second podcast uh, with Jeff Helm Helmreich. And, uh, you know, we sort of tear it apart a little bit. Um, so if you want to listen to that, of course, again, the, you can go to iTunes. It's uh, pretty well ranked. Uh, so if you search for the Cut Podcast, or even if you just search for Circumcision, it'll come up uh, in the results. Okay, so that was the, the second episode of the podcast, but then the tour started. And um, just a little bit about the tour, because I think it's, it was quite a remarkable achievement. Um, and I, not that, I, I mean, I take some credit, but most of the credit has to go to the whole network. Um, who, you know, rose to my challenge of raising the money to make this happen and uh, organized. Uh, of course, um, my partner in crime, Penny, stayed home to take point on logistics, which was absolutely key. And this whole thing was organized through Facebook, um, including the fundraising and everything, uh, the planning. Uh, and it was done for, now look at, this is 30 cities in 60 days, and we did it for under $4,500. Wow. I, I bring this up because I think that's, it's, it's really important to understand what you can do with, with a little bit of resources and um, sort of a lot of passion. Um, so this, this was the map. Uh, one or two of the stops were canceled and altered, but this was basically what I did. Uh, I drove in a rented car 
uh, with my iPhone and uh, some recording equipment and the film and, and we showed it in all these different places. Um, so here's me on the road. It's probably not safe, but it's a pretty picture. Um, in one of the first stops of the tour, I'm not going to have time to go into every single stop. There was ama I had amazing experiences everywhere, but I want to bring up some highlights um, for the purposes of this presentation. Uh, in Austin, I met Janet Heimlich, uh, daughter, by the way, of the uh, doctor who invented the Heimlich maneuver, just sort of interesting fact. Uh, and Janet was uh, an NPR uh, journalist and has now branched off into independent journalism and published this book. And she came to my screening, and this is a few minutes of our conversation in the Q&A. Okay, so I bring, that, I bring Janet up because she's an excellent example of a human rights activist, uh, and specifically focusing on children's rights, who does not make the mistake that I was talking about about religion, right? She doesn't, actually, if you read her book, it's very clear this is not uh, a diatribe against religion. There's a particular um, malignant variant of religion that she associates with authoritarianism. Um, and that's what she's, she, she's targeting. Um, and this is, this is great. I think that's great. All right, so these are some of the signage, some of the signage that was, that was around. This was in uh, Missouri. Um, here we come to Atlanta. This is taken from the uh, window of David Llewellyn's office, who was one of the uh, Atlanta organizers, along with Aubrey Taylor. Um, and this was our lovely uh, venue in Atlanta. It was a Unitarian church, I believe. Um, and... Uh, Actually, I, t I said that uh, Professor uh, Melvin Connor was going to come up a little bit later, and this is sort of where he comes up. And I, I haven't sort of verified this fully, but I sort of, you know, I have a nose for BS, and this doesn't reek of it. This sounds about right. Um, they tried to get a screening at Emory, and a particular person by the name of um, Melvin Connor uh, objected to having the film shown at Emory. So, you know. He came back to haunt me. What can I say? Um, this is in uh, South Carolina. This is Alexandra S. Mewson. She's one of the new generation of intactivists. Um, 23 years old, put on a kick-ass screening. Uh, down there we had a lot of people, and I, I thought that was kind of cool. Those are real. Yeah, of course, the... Everyone recognizes the intactivist symbol. The other one's a lactivist uh, symbol. West Virginia. This is in D.C. Um, and I felt really cool because I got to spend time with the science nerds. Um, Ryan McAllister was the organizer in Washington, D.C., who's an incredible, incredible individual. If uh, any of you haven't yet seen his uh, video, I believe it's called The Elephant in the Hospital. Um, or some derivation of that. If you Google it, you, that's close enough, it'll come up. It's an excellent presentation on circumcision. He's a researcher at Georgetown University, and he does uh, incredible work. Uh, he did this great presentation on circumcision, which uh, was a product of his research, and he's researching now other um, OBGYN practices that are not medically based, uh, you know, early clamping of the, of the cord, um, unnecessary cesarean sections, that sort of thing. Um, and what I'm about to show you is a little bit from the Q&A in Washington, D.C. Uh, and uh, we had a rabbi for the first, I think that was the first rabbi that we had on a panel uh, on the tour. All right. So that was uh, Rabbi Benjamin Biber. 
and uh, Ryan McAllister in the middle and me, of course. Um, and again, an example of an entire branch of Judaism for which circumcision, now granted, this is a marginal, marginal thing. It's just starting to gain steam, secular humanist Judaism. Um, you know, it's a very interesting movement, um, but there you go. Uh, an example of someone who definitely takes the tradition seriously, uh, not a fundamentalist at all. Um, this I just had to include because this is like one of my dreams. So, <laughs> so it, it happened on the tour and it was, it was just fun. This was in Syracuse at a really great one screen old theater, which was awesome. Um, this is in Pittsburgh. Uh, some of you may know Greg uh, Hartley. Uh, this is, I just thought it was cool that he, he has a fly, flying spaghetti monster and then uh, the uh, Intactivist sticker on the car. That's kind of cool. We'll come back to the flying spaghetti monster later. Um, and then this is Chicago. Um, and I came back to Chicago, you know, Penny and I moved to LA uh, just about a year and a half ago. So we'd only been living in LA for a few months when I went on tour. And this was like coming home, you know, I lived in Chicago for 10 years. And sure enough, uh, some interesting stuff happened while I was there. And the first interesting thing that happened, uh, Dan organized a screening that was off tour of the, uh, of the film uh, in the Gender Studies Department at University of Chicago. And two people showed up that I was very happy to see there. Thank you. Um, one was my father. Uh, and it's always great to share a plenum with him uh, at these events. And the other person was a professor by the name of Richard Schwader. And he, it's his question that you'll hear. It's a little hard to hear his question, but you'll get a sense of what he's asking and how my father responded, which is very interesting. OK, so that's my father. Um, I should clarify that uh, someone later on in the discussion made clear that the, uh, the proposed legislation in San Francisco would have applied also to religious circumcisions, and he didn't back down. Now, you can hear that in the, in the podcast, which I thought was very interesting. Um, so, and I actually think that his comment about head injuries is, is pertinent, relevant, and very interesting in terms of contextualizing uh, what we're talking about, it, much in the same way that Janet Heimlich sort of contextualized it in a broader sense, and I think that's important to do. Okay. Um, moving right along, um, so the guy who asked the question was Professor Richard Schwader. Uh, Richard Schwader, in my view, is the quintessential cultural relativist. Um, and we talked a little bit earlier about cultural relativism as a consistent position. And he embodies this. He wrote an essay called Shouting at the Hebrews, uh, which is specifically about male circumcision as a kind of window into what he calls robust uh, liberal uh, ethics. He's not a moral relativist. This is kind of an important uh, thing to understand. Some uh, anthropologists are both cultural relativists and moral relativists. He's not a moral relativist. Um, and so I want to play a little bit from my interview with him uh, so you can get a taste of what his argument is. I tried to describe a conception of the moral order, the domain of moral truths, which is reminiscent of something that Isaiah Berlin which is an idea that there are the moral domain, which he viewed as populated by objective goods, is multiple and diverse and plural. It contains many kinds of moral ends or goods or values. And they're often in conflict with each other. They can't all be maximized simultaneously. But it's a rich territory. 
And I think the mistake that many Enlightenment liberals make, who I describe as imperial liberals in this um, essay, is to select a small subset of those values and act as though that's the entire moral domain. And of course, that the value they focus on is autonomy or free choice or self-governance. And if you look at, from my point of view, as I understand the evidence, if you look at neonatal male circumcision, it is indeed a failure to fully respect the autonomy and free choice of the infant. However, all that shows is that it's illiberal in the sense of not valuing or privileging autonomy and free choice, which is hardly the same as making a judgment that it's unethical, because the moral domain is full of all sorts of values in addition to autonomy and free choice. And those include duty, interdependency, a sense of commitment and attachment to in-groups, the history of those in-groups, loyalty, senses of sanctity, purity, of sacredness. There are multiple kinds of moral goods that make claims on people. And so while I view neonatal male circumcision as illiberal, I don't view it as unethical. And the kind of pluralism, robust culture of pluralism that I've tried to develop appreciates the scope of the moral domain and is prepared to perceive moral goodness or goodness and value in things that are illiberal. Um, and that includes you know, male circumcision. Okay. Um, this is really important for everyone here to hear because th this is a consistent position. It's not moral relativism. And it's a very sophisticated argument. Um, and this, is, this was an excerpt from the uh, interview I did that's on the podcast. Uh, the name of the podcast, uh, if you want to search for it quickly, it's called uh, Shouting at a Hebrew, um, which is a takeoff on his, the name of his uh, essay, Shouting at the Hebrews. Um, but there, there are two things that, I, that, that became clear to me through our discussion. The first is, and I asked him this in the interview, is there any level of damage that would lead you to say that we ought not practice circumcision? And he said, yes. He said, if you could demonstrate to me conclusively and empirically that um, there was significant impact on male sexual performance, for example, then I, would, I might agree with you, but the data is not there. So that's the first thing, that a big part of our disagreement turned on the extent to which circumcision is actually harmful. Um, and, you know, here, everyone in this room and everyone who's interested in the subject, the truth is we have some work to do. We need to have more uh, work along the lines of John Taylor and Ken McGraw, um, really mapping out, and, and again, we don't really have philosophically or empirically the tools to actually quantify pleasure and pain properly at this point in our uh, scientific advancement. Um, but we could do better than we're doing now in terms of describing the harm. So that was one thing that our disagreement turned on, which I think is, is interesting. Here's the second point, which ties back into the mistake that I said many people in all three categories, religious fundamentalists, cultural relativists, and human rights activists make about religion. And this emerges uh, from Professor Schwader's larger body of work. Um, 
he doesn't really understand that religious traditions, and the Jewish tradition in particular, um, is a constant tug of war between liberal and illiberal attitudes. In his sort of conception of religion, it's monolithic. Again, he concedes that to the religious fundamentalists in a way. And I think that this is, this, you know, he has a secular background. I have a religious background. I come from within the tradition. He sort of does not come from within the religious tradition. And I think that may account for our difference in perspective on this point. And later in the presentation, I'm going to be proving to you what I just said uh, about the Jewish tradition. But right now, I'm going to prove it to you with the next person I interviewed on the podcast, Rabbi Asher Lopatin. When you have a situation, I'm going to ask a very general question, and obviously this relates directly to circumcision for you. But when you have a situation in which um, you, as a member of the Jewish people and person who's invested in the Jewish tradition, find a practice that isn't just something that you're uncomfortable with, but you think is actually wrong, what do you do? You need to speak out. You need to, uh, I gave a sermon a couple of weeks ago, Al uh, Domi, you know, that, that we, uh, the prophet uh, Isaiah demands that God not be silent, and we have to demand that we're not silent, and uh, if you feel that there's something that's wrong, uh, that's wrong Jewishly, and that's, well, you gotta, you gotta speak out, and you have to demand of rabbis to look at the sources and to defend it, uh, and uh, and that's the way halacha needs to work. It needs to have people arguing, and, and it needs to, there should be no sacred cows. There should be no uh, laws that are so central that people say, this is obvious, or this is clear what the Torah means. And you know this applies in the area, areas of uh, homosexuality, applies in the areas of egalitarianism. It applies, uh, you know, uh, in, in many uh, in many other areas that we have to say, you know, what this if it feels wrong, and if you think it's wrong, then you have to publish, you have to write about it, and and then you know you might you'll get pushback, and maybe you are, and it's one, one opinion, uh, someone has one opinion about a certain issue, people will write and need to respond to you. It's not. Uh, we don't go to a prophet or, or some you know, mystic who just comes up with the truth. It's part of, the, of a debate and an open debate, and everyone has a right to do that. Now, Rabbi Lopatin is not, uh, does not belong to the liberal movements in Judaism. In fact, he's as far away from the secular humanist rabbi as you can get. Rabbi Lopatin is an orthodox rabbi. And Rabbi Lopatin is about to take the reins of one of uh, the most interesting rabbinical uh, colleges, uh, seminaries uh, out there, Yeshivat Chovavei Torah, YCT, uh, in Riverdale. Uh, and he's, uh, I mean, he has some very uh, interesting opinions about things, but he's a mainstream orthodox leader. Um, and I think that's pretty remarkable what you just heard him say. Okay, so there was a lot of driving. And then I got to Boulder, which is really beautiful. Um, Miriam Pollock uh, and Jillian Longley were the organizers here, and it was a, a wonderful time. This was our biggest screening. We had 150 people at the Jewish Community Center in Boulder to watch the film. This is Seattle. 
where I met John <laughs> and family. And uh, <laughs> they had some really great posters. This is Heather Long, who is the organizer there. She's wearing a pretty awesome T-shirt. And I got to Vancouver, and uh, I met this guy. Anyone recognize this guy? This is Glenn Callender. Glenn Callender is the founder of the Canadian Foreskin Awareness Project. Glenn is intact and very proud of it. And he does a sort of musical theater comedy show around his foreskin. Uh, it's a, it's a, he went on tour this past summer, actually, um, in part inspired by, uh, by my tour. And he's a great guy. I love Glenn. Uh, there's a famous saying that there are no atheists in foxholes. You know this saying? It never made sense to me, because if I were in a foxhole, I'd want to be with an atheist. <laughs> Maybe someone like Glenn. Um, okay. So, Ronald Goldman once told me, you know Ronald Goldman, everyone here knows Ronald Goldman. Ronald Goldman once said something very wise about talking about circumcision. He said, you should start your conversation by asking the person you're talking to whether they're ready to assimilate new information about the subject. And I think that's a great way to start a conversation like that. So I'm going to ask you, are you ready to assimilate some new information about the Jewish tradition? Yes. yes. No. <laughs> Sammy, you in particular need to hear this. <laughs> <laughs> the Jewish tradition, um, in very broad terms, is divided into two areas. We have the written law, which is basically what you know as the Old Testament. And we have this thing called the oral law, which not a lot of people know about. But the oral law is actually really the bulk of the Jewish tradition. Um, traditionally, it's believed to have come down on Sinai at the same time as the written law. But it, it was forbidden to write it down. And actually it was forbidden to write it down, it was orally transmitted until roughly the year 200 of the Common Era. Uh, and at that time it was feared after the destruction of the temple that the, the wisdom would be lost. So they broke the taboo and they, they started writing it down. Um, and the oral law broadly, again, this is, this is all very in broad terms, it, co it consists of the Mishnah, the Talmud, and the Midrash. The Mishnah is uh, sort of the oldest of the texts that we have written down. Um, the Talmud is an interpretation, and the Mishnah is an interpretation of the Old Testament, um, sort of getting more specific about the laws. You know, the Old Testament is kind of very broad and actually um, very open to interpretation because partly because of structural reasons. Uh, the Hebrew language is very, um, shall we say, economical. Um, there are very few words, and words have multiple meanings and multiple uh, sort of connotations to them. And it, it's really, um, th what that leaves open is, is a lot of room for interpretation, even more than, than you would find in, in a language like English, where we have like really precise terms. English is a great language for law, by the way. We've got like different words for, for like fine distinctions. Uh, Hebrew's not like that, especially not biblical Hebrew. Um, so the Mishnah is an interpretation of the Old Testament, and it sort of gives practical advice about how to live. 
the Talmud is a voluminous interpretation of the Mishnah. And it's a really, it's a masterpiece. It's a huge work of law, ethics, dietary suggestions, strange pieces of advice, and really interesting uh, stories. And then there's the Midrash, uh, which is um, more narrative driven, and it's more about the stories in the Old Testament. Okay, this is what a piece of uh, Talmud looks like. Okay, it's a little bit intimidating. This is actually, this way of presenting the, the Talmud uh, is sort of from the 18th century, and it's been standardized around this. So this is how, when people learn Talmud, this is what it looks like in uh, yeshivot and places like that. The central text is in Aramaic, uh, and these are in uh, medieval Hebrew. These are medieval commentators on the Talmud. So you're starting to get a sense that the Jewish tradition is interpretations on interpretations on interpretations on interpretations, and so forth. Um, and what I'm going to show you next is a clip from the Cut Tour in Montreal, where we had an Orthodox rabbi who has a very different viewpoint than the last Orthodox rabbi we heard from, Rabbi Chaim Bula, who came to the Montreal screening. And um, he's going to exhibit um, what I think is very clearly the religious fundamentalist position. And then you'll hear my pushback on that. Okay, so, you know, I try to make my vision more attractive than his vision. <laughs> That's what I was doing. But I, and not in an insincere or sneaky rhetorical way, like honestly and genuinely, like that's, that's what I was, like that's how I feel. Um, you know, oftentimes uh, Jewish uh, leaders fall short of my, uh, <laughs> my expectations or my uh, standards for what being Jewish means, but okay, fine. But you know, that's all nice and well, but you gotta kinda put your money where your mouth is uh, and actually do something. So what I'm going to show you now is something that uh, I've never talked to anyone about before, but I think is really, really uh, an interesting find. Uh, and I'm going to try and, and do a little uh, Talmudic interpretation. Would you, would, will you join me in this? OK. Sammy, you really need to hear this. Okay, so on, it, on the face of it, we have a serious problem here. If you want to argue against circumcision from within the Jewish tradition, I mean, all the things that, the, that Rabbi Bula said are true, right? It's a biblical commandment. And one of the things that I should have mentioned earlier is that the way Talmudic logic works is that the person or the, the source that's closest to the earliest in history is the one that takes precedence. So if that, that's the way the legal system works. If you want to make an argument against someone who said something early on, you have to bring someone else who said something at the same time period to support your argument. That's the way the logic works. Um, those are the rules of the game. Okay, so circumcision, it's a tough one. It's a tough nut to crack here, okay? It's a biblical commandment. Um, so it's not just a rabbinic ordination. So that already gives it more weight. In the Bible, it says that you get the punishment of karet. You get cut off from the Jewish people if it's not performed. And it specifically states that it's required on the eighth day. So what's a person who's, uh, you know, who cares about human rights to do? Uh, this, is, this looks like a pretty ironclad argument. But if you look a little closer, actually, it's not so ironclad. Um, I'm going to start with karet. Karet, and the title of my film is actually a sort of uh, 
cheeky reference to karet, because the word karet in Hebrew means cut. Um, so you cut off if you don't do this. But it's not entirely clear what karet is. The rabbis never uh, arrive at a firm understanding of what exactly this spiritual excision punishment looks like. There are in, 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 there's an enormous amount of debate about it. Um, and people sort of stopped caring about it after a, a time. By the way, not circumcising is not the only karate uh, offense in the Torah. Eating leavened bread on the on Passover, um, I believe, uh, breaking thirty-six cases. Yes, there, there are breaking Shabbat's another one. Eating on the fast of Yom Kippur, there are many karate um, punishments. But specifically with regard to circumcision. The question arises, well, who does the karate apply to? Okay, if I'm a father and I don't circumcise my son, do I get karate? And I think the consensus opinion, there are some minority opinions that disagree with this, but the consensus opinion is no. The karate applies to the individual who fails to circumcise himself. So technically, we've just knocked out karate because what we're arguing for is to postpone this decision to the age of consent um, if a person is able to circumcise themselves before they die, they won't get karate according to the majority understanding of what karate is. Okay? So, goodbye karate. Um, what about the fact that it's a biblical commandment and that it's required on the eighth day? Okay, now we're going to have to get into some technical areas. I've tried to simplify this as much as possible, but I, don't, I haven't seen this anywhere else, so you're, you're the first people to see this, okay? There's a, a passage in the Talmud in Tractate Brachot, 19b to 20a. And there's a teaching cited there in the Talmud. Um, it, it, there was a biblical prohibition that was well known that you're not allowed to mix linen and wool. You can't wear those two fabrics together. And the Tanaitic teaching that from the time of the Mishnah is that if someone is seen wearing one of those garments, I don't know how you'd know today, actually Orthodox Jews they have labs where they take their suits in and they look under microscopes. So I have no idea how just walking down the street you'd know if someone was wearing this. Maybe back in the day it was more obvious. I don't know. But if you see someone wearing one of these garments, he can be stripped of it even in public. And the, the uh, proof text for this is from Proverbs. There is no value to wisdom or understanding or counsel when weighed against the honor of God. So from there, this Tanaitic source learns that God's uh, dignity overrides human dignity in this instance. Okay, so just to acclimate you a little bit to this 7th century text, there are lots of objectionable things that you will find here. The Talmud is full of um, some really out there statements, but in this particular instance, the rabbis were bothered by this. And they actually launched into a series of attempts to disprove it. Now, like I said before, the only way to disprove something in the Talmudic system is to, to quote sources that are con, uh, uh, contemporary to the, to the original source that you're trying to refute that would contradict it. And for half a page, they go about trying to list sources to demonstrate that, you, that human dignity overrides uh, Torah commandments. They were bothered by this source. And the final attempt, I won't go through all the attempts, but the final attempt has to do with the laws of the Nazir. Now, a Nazir is uh, it's this category of person uh, that's spoken of in the Bible. It's a person who promises not to drink wine or cut his hair or, you know, 
the most famous instance in the Bible is Samson, right? And when Samson cut his hair, he lost his strength. He was a Nazir. Uh, it's sort of an ascetic, it's a strange ascetic uh, state. Uh, and they have sp specific laws. And one of the laws is brought down in Numbers 6-7. He may not come upon a dead person, even if his father or mother or his brother or sister should die. He must not defile himself for them. Okay, so this is one of the special laws that apply to this particular kind of person who made this vow not to drink wine or cut his hair. Um, he can't be around dead people. There, there is a whole system of purity and impurity in the Jewish tradition. And this person is like a super pure person, so he can't be around dead people, even if it's his... Uh, closest relatives. And there, there's some superfluity super here, right? Uh, why doesn't he just say he can't, may not come upon a dead person? Why does it have to say father, mother, brother, sister, right? So the Talmud always, and the Midrashic mode, is always to assume that if there's, if there could have been a more economical way of saying it, they must have said it this way because each one teaches you something different. So again, this is the way the Midrash works, the Talmud works. So what do they learn from or sister? And here, this is going to start coming home to what we're talking about. The words or sister teaches that if he were on his way to sacrifice a paschal lamb or circumcise his son, and he came across an unattended corpse, he must forego those commandments to attend the corpse. There's a, a very strong sense in, the, in, in Jewish law that if you come across an unattended corpse, a corpse that has not been put in the ground, you have to stop everything that you're doing to attend to that. And again, it's for this thing called kavod briot or human dignity. It's the, the sense that human dignity overrides other situations. And they're trying to use this as a proof text to generalize the principle to say, look, in this situation with the Nazir, you, um, you, human dignity overrides his purity. So why don't we generalize from this instance and say, in general, uh, human dignity overrides Torah commandments, right? But they reject this. Um, and they reject it as they did all the previous attempts on the grounds that this case is different from the case of someone wearing a mixture of cotton and linen. This is, this, there's a unique feature here that prevents us from generalizing to all commandments. And what's that unique feature? And here is the punchline. Shev ve'al ta'aseh. In this instance, if you're on your way to sacrifice a paschal lamb or to circumcise your son, what would be required of you is to simply sit and do nothing. To sit and not do. And therefore, it can't be generalized to other commandments. What comes out of this, which is really... Sorry, the Hebrew messes up sometimes, which is really crazy and interesting, and I couldn't believe it when I read it, is that according to this passage in the Talmud, we can divide commandments into commandments that can be overridden for human dignity and commandments that can't be overridden for human dignity. And guess which side of the fence circumcision falls on? Okay? Is this... Resonating? Are we, are, we, are we understanding what I'm saying here? So when people come to me and they say, you know, it's a Torah commandment, I've always sort of said, you know what? 
the father just has to postpone the decision-making to the individual until they reach the age of majority. What I've discovered here is that there's a Talmudic passage to suggest that not performing a commandment can be overridden for the purposes of human dignity. This is a big deal, I think. (laughs) Now, even if you don't take the next step that I'm about to make, what this demonstrates, even for someone who doesn't agree with my position on circumcision, is that in the rabbinic imagination, circumcision was not as high on the totem pole as you might have assumed. In fact, it can be overridden in certain instances, and they even give a name to the principle in which they distinguish between this sort of instance in which you're not doing something and other instances in which you have to do something. Now I'm going to take this step. Okay? So I, I may be outside of the bounds of what's considered orthodox thinking right now. Not maybe. Definitely. Fine. But I think we know that circumcision itself is an affront to human dignity. And based on the principle that I just uncovered in the Talmud, I would like to humbly suggest that this principle override the commandment of circumcision, at least until the age of majority. Ah. What does it mean majority for you, 99 years? No, I, Sammy, you know, I've always argued that the age of consent for sexual intercourse should be the same as the age of consent for circumcision. That's what I think. And And then what is the age? That's a whole discussion that we can have at another time. At what age can a person consent to sex is another big discussion that we can have. But I do think that those two things make sense to go together. Okay. I wanted to include this. Um... <laughs> You know, I said I'm not an activist, but when, the AA, when it comes to the AAP, they get my, my goat. <laughs> they really do. Yeah. Does he not look like me? No. That's me. Scary, right, Sam? Are you a rabbi? No, no, no. Half rabbi. No, not even half. Um... In addition to this uh, picture that I took, which was part of the whole network's campaign against the AAP, um, I also, uh, in collaboration with David Wilton, two years ago, I think, sent a copy of Cut to every person on the task force. Um, I guess it didn't help. All right. We ready for some tough love? No. <laughs> what is the catch if it doesn't help? What was the catch? The catch. Which catch? If it doesn't help, what you said, it didn't help. Oh, well, I, what I'm saying is, I sent it two years ago in the hopes that the American Academy of Pediatrics would be so moved by my wonderful filmmaking <laughs> that they changed their position statement. It didn't work because they came out with a horrendous position statement this year. No, I sent it a no. I know in Israel there are group who are against. Right. Because I have been about 15 times there. Right. 
Because I know our group for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll have a Q&A we'll in a second. We have a lot of time for discussion after this. Sorry, so. sorry, sorry. Yeah, no, no, it's okay. I'm just going to wrap up here with my tough love. Um, so we've already covered um, this idea that um, no one in this room should make this mistake again in casting religion as a monolithic system of thought. And I'm not saying this from a position of apologetics. I'm really not apologetic about religion. I'm saying this from my commitment to truth. I, I happen to be really familiar with my tradition, and I can say, state as a matter of fact that it's not monolithic, and I think I've demonstrated that in the presentation. Um, and I, I just, it bothers me when I see people of all stripes sort of giving in to the fundamentalists and saying, yeah, okay, that's what religion is, because that's not what religion is. This goes back to a point that Brian made in his presentation. Um, and I, but I think it's also really important for us to understand that. And, you know, um, there's a lot, there's like, with intactivism, you have these sort of Venn overlaps. And one of the Venn overlaps is uh, atheism. And, you know, I really, I, I mentioned before that I have a great amount of affection for atheism and for atheists. Um, but sometimes they, they, they can be a little fundamentalist. Um, <laughs> And, and that's as foreign to me as religious fundamentalism, to be honest. And I'd like to make a distinction here between science and scientism. And, and I would humbly submit to you that when Richard Dawkins says science, what he really means is scientism. And Richard Dawkins is a, is a wonderful evolutionary biologist, and he's a really piss-poor philosopher. And this whole movement of the new atheists, which I, I, did, I did a whole podcast about, I, I led a reading group uh, of the new books, you know, uh, Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins and the late Christopher, the late and great Christopher Hitchens. You know, I, I, again, I have affection for these people, Daniel Dennett. I like them, but there is a sort of fundamentalist side to that. Um, and again, as foreign to me as religious fundamentalism, scientism should not be confused with science. Science is a really, really important human innovation that gives us a very, very specific set of claims about reality. And to try and broaden that beyond what it's actually meant for and what it's good at, I think leads us into a lot of problems. Okay. Specifically to uh, uh, the intactivist movement. These are my three things that I think are lacking right now in the movement. I think where the intactivist movement is right now is that it's still um, not mainstream. I mentioned before um, my friend Mordechai Levavitz, who's a gay rights activist in the Orthodox Jewish world in New York. Um, I've also encountered many activists in the Palestine Solidarity Movement uh, from my new project. Um, these are causes that have gone mainstream. Uh, gay rights went mainstream a few years back, actually. Um, and we can learn a lot from these movements. And one of the, the most important things we can learn from them is, is discipline. Um, and when I say discipline, what I mean is that we, we can't make alliances with people who make racist or borderline racist statements. This is really, really important. And it applies to the situation in San Francisco last year in the summer, 
and it applies to the situation in Europe where there are far right-wing Islamophobic parties that are trying to tag along on this issue because they have problems with Muslims. And I think it's really, really important to be more disciplined about who our allies are. Organization. I uh, just showed you uh, the map of my tour not too long ago. Um, there is lots of room for improvement in the way that tour came together, but it was an incredible grassroots effort for a very small amount of money. And we reached thousands and thousands of people. Um, there were articles, you know, we had the people who were attending the screenings, and then we had the advertising in the cities, and then we had the articles and the journalism written about the tour and about the film. And, and that was all done through Facebook, which is kind of incredible. Um, but I think we need to be better organized, and I think we need to focus on high-impact targets. I know a lot of interactivists who sort of, they'll go into a bookstore and, you know, maybe put some bookmarks in a, in a book, like with interactivist literature or something like this, and it, it's, it's lovely, but what we need to be doing is getting into medical schools. We need to be talking to doctors and nurses, um, and we need to be making alliances with people within religious traditions who are questioning this. I think there is a dearth of Muslims in this room right now. And there's no reason for that. It's not because they're not out there, it's because we haven't found them, or they haven't found us. Um, and the only way I really, I think it's gonna change in the religious communities is by alliances with people from within. I think that's, that's a really important point that's been made here, but it, it needs to be restated. So that's my tough love. This is where you can find my stuff. Uh, thank you very much. I'd like to open for question and answer. <laughs>